T minus 17 seconds and count. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9. When earthly relations have been touchy, nations have seen space as a venue for cooperation, temporarily setting aside political issues for the sake of a greater purpose high in the sky. To misquote General von Clausewitz, space has often been a continuation of politics by other means, and this has produced very positive outcomes. Five spacemen are orbiting the Earth tonight, heading toward that Soviet-American meeting in space. Two countdowns, 10,000 miles apart, sent the Soviet Soyuz and the American Apollo flawlessly into orbit for their historic rendezvous on Thursday and two days of working together in space. The first example that comes to mind is the joint U.S.-Soviet Apollo-Soyuz mission in 1975. We were at the height of the Cold War, but Russia and America, the biggest superpowers and rivals at the time, displayed extraordinary levels of collaboration, and they showed the powerful role space can play in bringing about geopolitical détente. A more recent, and still current, example is the International Space Station, about the only place where Russians and Americans still work closely together. 263 individuals from 20 countries have visited the International Space Station. Relations between the EU and UK are frosty at the moment, but nowhere near as tense as those between the US and Soviet Union in the 1970s. Of course, the two unions, UK and EU, have not always been on the same wavelength after Brexit. Far from it, whether on fishing licenses or border checks or other things. But when it comes to space cooperation, could we see a different story? Welcome to London Calling EU. I'm Clive Cookson, the science editor of the Financial Times, and I'm delighted to be joined today by a great expert panel. We have Carissa Christensen, CEO of the space analytics and engineering firm Bryce Tech, Florence Rabier, Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasting, Saeed Mosteshar, Director of the London Institute of Space Policy and Law, and finally, Gabriel Redigonda, Research Fellow at the European Space Policy Institute, ESPI. Now, one recent encouraging sign when it comes to EU-UK space cooperation is the merger announced last July between the French and British satellite operators UTELSAT and OneWare. So can I start with you, Carissa, please, and ask you whether this proposed merger is really important? Could it be a turning point in EU-UK space relations? Carissa. I'm not sure I would call the merger a turning point. I do think it is important. I would characterize it perhaps as a demonstration of the continued interrelationship and interdependence of the UK and Europe in space. The UK, of course, remains a member of the European Space Agency. There are ongoing connection points. The UTELSAT OneWeb merger perhaps is most interesting from the point of view of it's a demonstration case of a hybrid geo-leo 
commercial satellite operator. And what does that mean? Utilsat operates what we might call traditional satellites, large satellites in an orbit tens of thousands of miles away that have very long lives and provide television and internet backbone. OneWeb is a new type of satellite operator with many hundreds of small satellites in a very close to Earth orbit, which are aimed at providing broadband to end users. There's been a transition from those large satellites to those small satellites in terms of investment and business interest, although you need both types of satellites to continue to provide the full range of services that people will want from satellites. And so this merger is going to give us a case study of how a company can operate both those kinds of systems and whether the business case for the new type of satellites will close as it's envisioned and what the impact will be on more traditional satellites. I also think that uh, an impact of this merger will be, we'll see the UK, which is a government investor in OneWeb, perhaps become a bit more of an activist investor when sitting on a board across from a French government counterpart reflecting the French government's investment in Utilsat. Thank you, Carissa. Of course, while Britain left the EU after Brexit, the country is still a member of pan-European international organisations, including the European Space Agency, ESA, and UMETSAT, the European Meteorological Satellite Body. But it's not a part of EU space programmes such as Galileo. And the future UK role in the Copernicus Earth Observation Programme is still up in the air. Said, how would you describe Britain's position vis-à-vis publicly funded European space activities? The uh, UK's position vis-à-vis the EU publicly funded activities in space is constrained by the fact that space has become a very important element in their national and regional security policies. This makes it slightly more complicated than it may otherwise have been. There is very limited access by the UK to publicly funded activities of the EU. One of the first casualties of the UK's withdrawal from the EU was the loss of access to the Galileo publicly regulated services, which provide encrypted, more precise positioning, navigation and timing signals for use by military and other government agencies. Understandably, the UK also focuses on commercial space, as does EU to some extent, but it is more important in this relationship from the UK perspective, because the EU's funds that can be spent on uh, space projects are much greater than the UK match. So that influences the relationship also. One thing that should be borne in mind, however, is that the collaboration and cooperation between UK and EU member states 
is not necessarily affected by this. The UK Space Agency, for example, collaborates with many of the European Space Agency's EU members, and uh, Italians are one example of that. There's also academic and research level cooperation and collaboration in science and technology between institutions in the United Kingdom and their European counterparts. At the policy and legal level, we at ISBL and SB have a collaboration agreement and work closely together, even though SB is more focused and is uh, to some extent tied to the European Space Agency. That, of course, is another area where we can collaborate more freely. Thank you, Said. Florence, the ECMRWF, the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, is a non-EU European organisation with its main base in the UK. And weather data from space are at the heart of your work. And you're also a key player in the EU Copernicus programme. Please give us your view of EU-UK space collaboration. Sure, thank you, Clive. So first of all, I have to explain why uh, space data matters a lot in what we are doing. So basically what we are doing, we produce global weather forecasts and we do global climate monitoring. We do that on behalf of our member states and of the EU for the Copernicus services. And if we want to monitor what happens now, of course, satellites are essential to cover all parts of the globe, but also to predict the weather, because you can't predict the future if you don't know what is now. So, for instance, what enters into our daily weather forecast is a lot of data from around the world, weather data, but satellite data is more than 95% of all the data we have in our system. So in terms of our collaboration with other agencies, the collaboration between ourselves, ECMWF, ESA and UMETSAT, other intergovernmental agency providing satellite data at the European level, is really huge and very smooth. And of course, the UK is a member of, of all three organisations. So the collaboration is continuing, not just within ECMWF, but within those other organisations providing data to us. And of course, it is worth stressing that these organizations are independent from the EU, although we are working closely with them. So we don't really have a direct impact from Brexit in our organization using a lot of satellite data. Even for Copernicus, we actually use a lot of satellite data. We use the Sentinel satellites, which are delivered by the Copernicus space component. Also, all other types of satellite data and coming from ESA and UMETSAT. So it also, in a way, benefits from Copernicus. Uh, now we are, as you say, uh, intergovernmental, European. We collaborate very closely with the UK Space Agency to produce jointly with the Met Office briefs for Ofcom, as you know, the UK's communications regulator. For instance, our position on bandwidth allocation, which can be a problem sometimes for what we are doing. So I think, at the organization level, the collaboration continues. And of course, at the individual level, you know, we have a lot of scientists in our organizations and the you can't stop the exchange of science. The UK is extremely strong in science and uh, it has this habit of collaborating very strongly with the rest of Europe. Scientists talk to each other, share views, discuss findings. 
So that plays a huge part of how science progresses. And I think we'll have to keep this bigger pitch at heart that, you know, what we are doing in weather climate monitoring is saving life and property and protecting the planet. And we are all engaged in continuing to exchange for the benefit of society. Gabriele, space policy is becoming increasingly politicized to the detriment of collaborative activities. Can you see a route to better collaboration between the UK and the rest of Europe in space, despite this politicization? Well, for sure, it's not an easy question to answer. Maybe I should start clarifying what we mean by politicization of space itself. And we have been calling politicization the fact of making use of space as a bargaining chip at the international level and bringing space to negotiation tables in order to achieve other different objectives, other political objectives. And this is what has happened in EU-UK relations. But there is a second option, and this option regards the fact that space can be taken uh, aside from the political debate for its own interest. But what I believe there is a third option that you mentioned during the first introduction, and it's related to the decisive role that space can play for fostering cooperation at international level and at national level. And this, I think, is the point we have to stress here. In order to do that, I believe uh, one should take a wider perspective. So taking into account what Sai was mentioning, so the emerging European commercial space sector, in which UK definitely plays a crucial role. And I can give you, for example, some numbers. In 2021, 235 million euros uh, raised by UK startups, as we reported in our recent Space Venture report. That has to be compared to the 80 millions uh, raised in Germany, 64 millions in Switzerland, and so on. So definitely a prominent role of UK and the, in this sector. And on the other side, there are also many investment funds uh, based in UK. Uh, Seraphim Space Capital is an example of that. And I, I believe this is what the UK brings to the table, brings to the negotiation table. But this bargaining chip, I think, must be coupled with what the rest of Europe, as you said in your question, with what the rest of Europe brings to the negotiation table. But this negotiation table should be at a global level. And there, uh, Europe on its own, so involving not only its continental partners, but also uh, UK, they can be a strong partner for global cooperation, for international cooperation on this other stage. And this is what I would call the new route for collaboration, the new perspective, the new angle to see UK, rest of Europe relations to foster cooperation on a global level. Thank you very much indeed. I'd like to pick up on the commercial side of space the business theme, in addition to the startups that you've just been mentioning. Of course, there's a big, well-established space industry. Companies, above all Airbus, which carry out R&D and manufacturing, both in the UK and on the continent. So I'd like to explore for a moment how these larger space companies are doing in the post-Brexit environment. Carissa, would you like to take that first? The larger space companies, particularly those based in both Europe and the UK, are certainly challenged in some ways when 
opportunities for participation in major European programs erode for their UK entities. That said, there certainly are hopes, uh, if not expectations, that there will be UK government programs that may provide additional opportunities. There continue to be collaborative opportunities um, with Europe. The other really important element in terms of markets for those companies is the defense side of space, which has become increasingly recognized as important globally over the last, particularly the last decade, and especially in Europe, that recognition has been energized by the events in Ukraine and the capabilities required to develop and operate relevant space systems for national security purposes are very much resident in some of those larger companies. That activity also connects those companies with very large U.S. national security markets. So I would say that the situation is, I don't know that Brexit has created positive outcomes in and of itself, but the current situation is very dynamic and there are new opportunities emerging. Saeed, would you like to pick up on what Carissa was saying? She introduced defense, which is, of course, very important for the space industry, particularly the larger companies. What's your view on how defence collaboration between the UK and EU would affect the space industry? It's certainly a very important factor. Indeed, the UK, as have others, Europe indeed also, have tended now to move to dual-use systems so that they can be used both for commercial and for security and defence projects and purposes. One of the early ideas on the acquisition of OneWeb was that it could also be adapted to provide the same kind of services as the public regulated services of Galileo. That's rather gone by the wayside, but in any event, it is a major driving force here. One thing very evident is that innovative and new projects are very much encouraged in the UK. It is the hope that uh, these kinds of developments, uh, the innovations that are being encouraged at Harwell and through ESA will uh, provide a bargaining chip, if you like, or indeed something to offer that uh, would bring the UK closer to the EU. But whether that will happen is also affected by how much funding goes into research and development. And on that theme, I would just mention the critical necessity to become involved and engaged have the benefits of Horizon Europe. Yes, at the time of speaking, I'm afraid we don't know whether the UK will be able to join Horizon Europe in some form as an associate member or indeed the future Copernicus programmes. One very important event 
in November is going to be the ESA ministerial meeting in Paris. So perhaps I could ask Florence about that. What do you expect and hope the European science and space ministers will come up with in Paris? What sort of agreements uh, are you looking for? Well, I hope that especially when you see the climate crisis we have at the moment, I hope there will be a strong commitment from member states to engage in particular in the Earth observation programs from ESA. ESA is doing, of course, satellites for Earth observations, but they also have an ESA climate office, which is in Harwell. And this, um, the climate office in particular leads the uh, climate change initiative, which provides some very important quantities to monitor the state of the planet. This is actually an information which we contract on behalf of the EU for Copernicus, for the Copernicus Climate Change Service. So indirectly, of course, uh, the UK is part of it. But I think it's very important that there is enough finances for the Earth observations. I would like to mention that one of the really success of making ESA this pioneering um, organization agency is also their Earth Explorer satellites, which are really important for the science community. And these are, of course, quite demanding from a technology point of view, so they are quite expensive. The latest of this Earth Explorer was Aeolus. It was a British-built wind monitoring mission, which has proved extremely important for also weather forecasting, not just the science. In the next one, so this really shows the involvement of the UK and what we can expect from the member states to invest in science for climate. Uh, In the next one, uh, there will be this uh, UK, as a proposal, this UK-led mission Truths. Uh, It's on the table for investment at the ministerial in November. And this would provide really important climate calibration observations from space. There's a lot that we would expect in the field of climate from this ministerial meeting in November for ESA. Gabrielle, I'm going to ask you a similar question. Florence has talked about climate monitoring options and missions. What else might you, we, hope for from the ESA ministerial? Yes, definitely. Let, let me agree with Florence on, on the on the green proposals. Uh, green is also one of the accelerators that has, has been presented during the last space summit at a very high level. So this is something definitely to, to focus on. What I also expect is the UK to be strongly involved in the part of the envelope that was proposed uh, by the ESA DG related to commercialization. And this is definitely a new part of the proposal itself. Uh, A large amount is expected from from the member states. And this is something that I believe UK will be definitely committed to be a part of, especially because uh, UK relies uh, on ESA for a large part of its uh, civil space public expenditure, around 75% which I think uh, should be devoted to a topic, uh, this one uh, related to commercialization that, as I already said, UK is definitely a strong player on the European ecosystem itself. Carissa, the UK does have a national space strategy and programme. Gabriella said that 75% of UK civil space spending at the moment goes on ESA. But how do you see the UK national space strategy? developing and and what might that imply for UK-European relations? 
Well, certainly the UK national space strategy has been laid out, but there's no policy in support of it. And uh, the world has been changing pretty rapidly, particularly the events in Ukraine and, of course, the impact on defense strategy and the challenges around the global economy currently. In thinking about the UK national space strategy, I think there are a couple of strands. One is, and we've discussed this in various forms, what are the core national programs likely to be? And it's difficult to envision a major civil initiative such as remote sensing or GNSS, navigation position and timing, that does not have significant national security relevance. So what will major initiatives look like there? Thinking about the relationship with Europe, the UK and Europe are certainly navigating, you know, political tensions and post-Brexit challenges and economic competition. But taking a, a global geopolitical view, the UK and Europe are absolutely aligned. A weak UK is a risk for Europe from a geopolitical standpoint. It's, it becomes vulnerable. It's I do think that the strategy really does need to think about uh, shared interests as well. And third, I agree with the point that the UK does bring a, a commercial space energy and capability and level of activity to the table and that exploiting and leveraging that uh, capability has got to be part of an effective strategy. Said, how do you see the UK's national strategy developing? I think one point that uh, I would uh, definitely second and support is that there isn't a policy crown to the strategy. There are certain ambitions that are declared in the national space strategy. But I think commercialization is very much going to drive what will be done in the UK. And of course, the economic, current economic circumstances uh, make it rather doubtful how much will be available for these initiatives where we might go. We've only just recently had appointed a uh, Minister of Science uh, so it's early days to tell whether the strategy will be implemented in the way that it sets out. But I think that certainly the environmental aspect of the space systems and the critical infrastructure that is uh, now very much based in space will be on the priority list. Thank you. I think there's just time for a last round of questions. We've been talking of Brexit as having a negative impact in space as in all other areas, almost all other areas of science and technology. Can anyone think of any positive upside, for example, in terms of UK cooperation with third countries. It's a bit of a challenge, but I'm going to go around and see if anyone can think of anything positive. Let me start with Florence. Uh, sorry, I can't think of anything positive. 
Okay, well, that's fair enough. <laughs> Carissa, maybe you can. Well, that was my answer as well. <laughs> I'll try to. <laughs> uh, one possible element is that the UK has focused more on relationship with its relationship with other Five Eyes nations may create new opportunities, both from a government activity standpoint and a commercial standpoint. Thank you. And for those who don't know, the other Five Eyes are US, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Um, you've had a little more time to think. Gabrielle, have you come up with anything, anything positive? Well, maybe uh, I would try to reverse the question a bit. Uh, for sure, there is a stronger cooperation with the US. Uh, for example, it's been announced a stronger cooperation in the sector of commerce, space flight, commercial space flight, and launchers, defense activities. But reversing the question, I would say there are new opportunities for cooperation with the rest of the Europe. As we said, there is the possibility to build a new sustainable uh, governance and relations uh, for the European space sector, which I think should be taken as an opportunity, not just as a side effect. Okay, thank you. So, Saeed, you're going to have the last word. Anything positive or anything you'd like to say to round up our discussion more broadly? It really is a challenge. Uh, one can pick certain things that have occurred uh, since uh, the withdrawal from the EU. I suppose the downside of, of identifying these things is that you realize that uh, our membership of the EU did not preclude us from developing those relationships. It may be we're certainly getting closer to the US, but we're always being close to the US. And uh, you can only judge this by the way that uh, the UK has consistently uh, supported the US in the UN Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. We do not diverge. And that is not to say we diverge from uh, the EU particularly. It's nothing very positive uh, that is specific to not being a member of the EU. One thing that one may consider a positive side from industry and the sector's viewpoint is that the UK has become more focused in developing uh, the national space sector, relying a little less on getting contracts uh, through ESA, because one of the major benefits of membership of the ESA for the UK in recent years has been the involvement in developing Galileo. That is now no longer there. But I would say on the whole, the space sector is gaining in importance both for Europe and the UK. And uh, we are, have very, very similar and mutual interests in things like space traffic management, and responsible behavior in outer space, uh, which in fact was a concept that was developed uh, through the EU and, and they were the first to articulate it in those terms. But in any event, these are positive sides in the sense that they provide opportunities 
for closer links and collaboration with the EU as things develop. Thank you, Saeed, for those wise final words. I'm afraid that's all for this episode of London Calling EU. Many, many thanks to my four panellists for a great discussion. And thank you for listening. The podcast will be back soon. And in the meantime, you can listen to previous episodes wherever you're listening now. And if you'd like to, please leave us a review. Goodbye.